Welcome to the Minimalist CEO Podcast with Nate Lindquist. Nate created the Minimalist CEO Method to help business owners redefine and grow their businesses by finding new demand in places they never thought to look where there's no competition. By following his opposite thinking strategy, Nate's coaching clients have grown their business up to 40% in just two months and created tens of millions of dollars in revenue. Nate himself has launched more than 140 businesses. On the show, Nate interviews successful business owners and experts who share the secrets you can use to have a better business and a better life. Hey everyone there, this is Nate Lindquist with the Minimalist CEO Podcast. Welcome to our maiden voyage. I'm excited to welcome you here. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for downloading it. Uh, maybe you're, you're you know, just listening to the audio, the podcast audio right now, or maybe you're watching the video on YouTube or on our website page, but regardless, I'm pumped that you're here. Welcome to uh, our guest. If you're looking for the go-to guy in New York for construction from Ground Up Construction, lots of experience in retail and multifamilies and everything in between. JD Suma, founder and CEO of King's Capital Construction Group. JD, welcome to the show and thank you for being on the Minimalist CEO podcast. Pleasure to be here, Nate. Good morning. Good morning. So, I mean, Let's just dive right into it. You're like, if I look at your rap sheet here, this guy, I mean, you've been in, we've got uh, Inc. 5000, U.S. fastest growing companies for four consecutive years. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, you know, in our conversation, you started business when you were 20. You've done a lot of different things. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, and our guest. How did you get into business? How did you start in this business? Okay. Uh, yeah, I started in business yeah, right around 20 years old. Real estate has, has always been my, my passion and my background. Um, at 20, kind of happened by accident. I, I was a, a licensed real estate agent and I went on a listing. And by the time I was done with that, that listing call, the woman who was trying to list her house said, why don't you just assume my mortgage and, and take over the house? It's 20. I wasn't even really sure what that meant. <laughs> but I did it and flipped that house in about a year. And I said, this is, this is a great business to be in. Real quick, so, and I don't want to interrupt the flow here, man. Sure. You're out looking at a listing and uh, in the real estate business where your passion is. Yeah. And the woman says, why don't you assume my mortgage? Can you expand on that? How does that yeah. happen? I'm not how really do, sure. You got the trust right out of the gate. So how, does that, how did that happen? Yeah, I'm, I'll be honest. I had no idea how the conversation turned that way. But by the time we were done, you know, in that hour meeting, she suggested it and I looked into it. I said, okay, this is, this is viable. So it was a, a multifamily in the Bronx and I was able to assume her mortgage, fixed up the property in about six months, got it sold and did pretty well on it for, for my first property. Yeah. Like I said, so from there I, I got the bug and real estate was, was where we went. But when I was 21, one of the real estate ventures I got into was, was a bar. And uh, so that started the bar venture at 21 years old. Perfect year 21. for that. <laughs> 21 yeah, my, years old. My grand opening was on my 21st birthday. But it came from real estate. So it seems like that. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Came from real estate. And we had a grand opening on my 21st birthday. I had about 700 people in the bar. Great birthday party. A grand opening. Did it sound like this? Was that what, if, what were you? <laughs> is that how it started? What's that? We were popping bottles. I would imagine. So you're 21 years old. You have a grand opening of a bar. 
So you end up flipping a house when you're 20. You're trying to get a listing and meet with the person who owns a multifamily. You assume the mortgage, you flip it, you make a, a profit on that. Yes. You get the bug because you like real estate, but now you see like there's this, I just made some money. Yeah, right? did very well at 20 years old on a first property, yes. So that- that's well, How do you say yes to a bar? Like what happened then? 21 years old, who doesn't want to own a bar? <laughs> but I'll tell you, I, it was short-lived and, and thank God for my health that it was short-lived because a 21-year-old should not own a bar. Okay. If you want to, I don't recommend it. Okay. So uh, we, we only owned the bar, I had a partner in it. We only owned the bar for about six months. And you know, it was good. We had a lot of fun, but it was time to move on. So we did that. And, and from there I, w I was in real estate. I was you know, buying and selling flips, holds, small stuff, you know, little two, three family stuff. And in 2008, when the market turned, I had a, a small subdivision that I wasn't able to sell. Nothing was selling at that time. Um, so we had to, unfortunately that, that got foreclosed on. We actually gave it back to the bank. They didn't have to go through the foreclosure process, but we gave it back to the bank, made an agreement with them. And I took about a year off in 2009 uh, with a childhood friend of mine. I said, let's, let's go into construction. Everybody thought I was crazy. My lawyer told me that, said, you're out of your mind. Why would you want to go into construction when everybody who's been doing this their whole life is getting out of the business? They're going bankrupt. What did you tell that? What did you tell your attorney and the other people who were saying, were you crazy? Did you feel crazy? Not at all. So what made you go into construction? I mean, how does, how does, if you could expand on, you're going from a transition of giving a, a multifamily, right? Is that a multifamily? Back to the bank. Uh, it was a subdivision. No, those were a subdivision. Yeah, they, there was going to be three single family houses built on a right, subdivision. Okay. Yeah. So you give that back to the bank and, and I assume it, you at a monetary loss. Is that right or no? Yeah, it, there was a loss. Yeah. Okay. Was that a tough, was that a tough, one of your tougher experiences along the way so far? It was. Uh, well, I wouldn't say so far. They've gotten worse. You know, no, you so far, but to that point, I should yes, say. Yes, at that point, it was. Okay. Yep. And then, and, you know, everything was going well back then. You know, if you remember at the time in real estate, at that time in real estate, all you had to do was purchase a property. You didn't have to touch it. You didn't have to do anything. And in six months, you know, you were making 10, 20%. The market was just on fire. Right. You couldn't do wrong at right. that point until the bottom fell out. And then, you know, and our, our, our deals were getting bigger. We were getting confidence and it was probably falsely inflated because the market was, was so hot. So the deals were getting bigger and, and this one that hurt. So it put me on the sidelines for a little, uh, luckily I, I wasn't totally tapped out and I felt that I had the contacts and, and that we can make this business viable. And my business partner was a, he was in construction his whole life. We were young, but he was in construction his whole life and he was a machine operator. So it was different from what I was doing, right? So he, he was more ground down where I was vertical construction. And to this day, that's still how our partnership kind of works. So you're still working with that partner today in construction? Absolutely. Yeah, 11 years in business. We've never had an argument. So you say ground down, that's excavation, backfilling, land, concrete, exactly. site prep and things like that. That's exactly right. Yep. Utilities, ground down stuff is excavation, concrete, underground utilities, all of that stuff. And when you started, just you're 22 years old and you're making decisions for construction projects with a partner. No. So I, at that time now I was 29. So I was doing real oh, estate okay. for those, those seven years in between. 
Okay. So we jump ahead. You took the year off, you did real estate in between, and then you decided to open a construction company with your partner. Okay. So you had some experience at that point in real estate. You'd learned some stuff. Okay. So at that point to this point, what happens to make it, to get you to the point where the CEO of King's Capital, I mean, how did, how did you become the CEO? How did you get to this point where now you're driving the bus and leading a company at the level that you are right now? I mean, it says you're, you've recognized, you've been recognized by a few publications. You've won awards. You got Westchester's 2013, 40 under 40 rising stars. That didn't happen by accident. You've got, you guys were chosen. King's Capital uh, Construction was chosen by Inc. 5000, the U.S. fastest growing companies for four consecutive years, and one of Forbes Magazine's New York business leaders in 2014. So you've accomplished all this stuff. How did you go from losing your subdivision to today to be able to accomplish so much? We grew organically. I always say that, you know, starting this business in, in 2009, when everybody thought we were crazy and it wasn't the time, helped build our foundation because we were able to start off slow. So I had a few contacts in the business and we started with some very small projects. I mean, literally our first project was $2,000. That was our first project. But as time went on, short time, and the market started to bounce back, our clients that we had that we serviced very well. I mean, we went above and beyond. That has always been our formula is relationships. Doing what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it. This is construction. I'm sure it's true in many other businesses, but in construction in particular, there's always going to be problems. There's always issues. There's always unforeseen. So how do you deal with those issues? And we excelled at that. When there was a problem, fixing it, owning it, and, and customer relations, just you know, doing what we said we were going to do. So as the market came back and our clients started getting bigger and we were expanding word of mouth, the projects got bigger. So, you know, it really just grew organically. We didn't do any marketing or advertising until I'd say probably two years ago. So we really grew those years that you were talking about in INC Magazine. That was all organic growth. That was, you know, without SEOs or, or marketing or anything else, we, we do now have a business development manager. But at the time, it was word of mouth and, and just really, you know, getting the word out there. So as you describe this, uh, JD, I, I, I hear this, this theme of growing organically, going slow, focusing on what's essential, doing the things that you say you're going to do. A lot of times with, with what I coach and mentor in the minimalist CEO is we run into uh, we work with, you know, we do talk to construction companies. We have some who are clients and they come to us and say, what are we going to do for our marketing? And everything seems to be a massive focus on these marketing ideas, these band-aids, this, I got to go and do a website. I got to go do a sales funnel. And, but you're talking about organic growth. You're doing some marketing. What advice would you give to say a construction company that maybe is doing one or $2 million a year and they're constantly having those peaks and valleys. They want to have some control on how they grow and where the new business comes from. What we, I mean, what, would, what kind of advice would you give to them so that they can take control of their lead acquisition and their, their new business development without throwing all their resources at gambling of marketing? I would say that you have to talk to your existing clients. A lot of times you get pigeonholed in a particular category. So a one, $2 million company will get there'll be an allocation for these types of projects. 
and your existing clients might see you as that type of contractor. And if you want to grow, you have to verbalize that. You have to talk to these clients and you have to tell them, I'm ready for this next project. And you have to prove that you in fact are. So we were given an opportunity by one of our existing clients that we started off with literally a $10,000 job in New Jersey, which was about 90 minutes from our home office at the time. $10,000 project cost me $12,000 to do. I lost $2,000 on that deal. Within a year and a half, I was doing $10 million in business with that particular client because just as I said, when the market changed and they came back and they started doing larger projects, because I was doing what I said I would do for that year and a half up to that time, when we sat down in the conference room, they trusted in me and they believed in me when I said, I'm ready to take on these bigger projects. And they actually gave me two at the same time of the biggest projects by far that we had done at that time. Yeah. It was a lot. It was a risk for us. But it was a calculated risk, and, and my partner and I, you know, stepped up to the challenge. So how did you, you talk about communicating with your existing customers. You said that a lot of times construction companies get pigeonholed. And, you know, I've definitely seen that. We've seen that with our clients. They, you know, they say, oh, we, we do con- concrete, we do excavation. And so if you could speak to, if they're going to talk to their customers, are they looking for new avenues where they can expand their offering, at least being open to serving the current client base in new ways? Is that what, what you think that points to? Not necessarily. I wouldn't necessarily recommend stepping out of what your expertise are. Okay. But what I'm speaking to in particular is, you know, there's a difference between a customer that does say, you know, twenty fifty thousand $50,000 repair and small project versus a contractor who can handle a million dollar project. Same skill, I'm saying same uh, trade, but different skill level. Okay. You understand what what I'm saying? Right. You're talking about establishing some trust with your current client base that you're the company that can now handle a bigger project, even if it's in that same special area. Correct. And I've lost some clients along the way with that as well, because their, their main business is say, you know, $150,000, $200,000 fit outs. Well, we did that for a long time and and they were a great client of ours. But as we got bigger, that wasn't what they needed. And it it wasn't the particular client that we were looking for either. But it was a stepping stone for us. And it was, um, you know, that, that particular client is very well known in the industry and having them on our resume gave us credibility. But we've moved on. And we're too big for them. Our, our overhead is too much. We can't do, we can't be competitive with a $150,000 fit out anymore. It's just not what we do. So that's interesting that, that you, that was a stepping stone client for us at the time. So it, to establish the trust, you were able to get to the point where you, if I were to, if I'm hearing you correctly, to really become exceptional at doing what you say you're going to do in that current space, communicating with the client, did you improve your processes, improve your communication, improve your delivery, and then start taking on bigger projects? Absolutely. Demonstrating that you're exceptional, now you can, you're the company that can take the bigger projects and then starting to say no to some of the smaller projects with total transparency, like, hey, you know, this isn't really gonna serve you that well, but we can do projects of this scope, let's be transparent about that. That's exactly right. That's so huge. Processes, are everything. So okay. we, got to, we got to a point 
that where we said, okay, we now are at this level and what got us here was great, but to go from this step to the next, we need to improve processes. We brought on a, a CFO who had, she, she actually was the CFO for IBM for many, many years. So there, there was actually some, some growing pains with that because clearly we're not IBM and never will be. <laughs> so we had to adjust some of the thought process from, you know, a monster, you know, international company like IBM to a small, medium-sized construction company. So I got to jump in on that. I got to. Or what was critical. And that's what she helped us with. Yeah, that's you. So I think anyone listening, I think our listeners would probably love to know because they're all looking for that, that person, that, that person that's going to jump in, be the linchpin, help influence the, you can't get there from here part of the process. Like, you know, when it's a huge, from what we've seen, there's a huge difference from a one to $5 million company and a five to $20 million company. Some big things happen. Obviously your CFO, when she came along, had experienced businesses doing tens of millions of dollars in each division. How did you find that kind of relationship how did you make sure that that person matched up? And at what point did, were you able to really internalize and maybe even fully understand like our processes, our organic building of our delivery systems is what's helping us win here. We need someone to help us scale. And then how did you get her? Well, we just knew that it was time because we were kind of, we were scrambling and not keeping up with some of the necessities on projects of that scale. So, I mean, it was clear as day. That was the easy part. Knowing that we needed help was the easy part. Okay. And we knew that. You're only as good as your people, right? Okay. I'm a huge advocate for surrounding myself with the smartest, the brightest, the most talented people for any position. They're going to help you succeed in, in every way, shape, and form. I clearly do not know everything or every aspect of the business or claim to. So you have to hire people who are experts in certain certain area so at that at that point we knew we had to level up and you know sometimes you have to pay for that now fortunately in in this circumstance this was a family member and we were able to to get her on board at you know it was nothing for what her caliber was and what she was doing it really was nothing she did this more to help us and, you know, she saw that there was a need and, and she graciously accepted it, at, you know, um, a salary. Saw the so potential maybe. It was, it was unique in that situation. Yeah. But, you know, from there, as, as, you know, she moved on, we're in that position all the time where we know we need, you know, an expert in this or, or one thing or the, the other. And you have to pay for that person. You know, that, that's the bottom line. When, when you find the right talent, don't worry about really dollars and cents because the value that they're bringing to the company is much more important and what they will save you in the long term is well worth whatever salary you're going to pay them. So you have a family member. That's interesting. Uh, I wish we all had a family member who was uh, a C-level executive from IBM to help us navigate. So how at that point, when you, you know, again, you're talking about organic processes. You're talking about doing what you say you're going to do. Now you're leveled up. What's your average size project by the time you bring on your CFO? What if you looked at your average? And what was the shift from where it used to be? Yes. So our average size project at that point was probably about a million dollars. Okay. And then you, what was it before that? So you kind of, it sounds like you were doing 150, $250,000 jobs and Correct. you made the leap to million dollar jobs. Yes. That's, so that's, how, that's exactly what the numbers are. 
Okay, so how do you how do you decide at that point? Well, I guess it's the, I mean, CFO doesn't sound like the natural next step. To so how do you how do you decide that this is a person who was a CFO that's going to come in and did they did she come in as CFO or did she come in with other capabilities and CFO was where she was? Well, because she was a CFO in her prior life, it was that was the natural progression to to bring her in at if. She wasn't a family member and we didn't have that unique opportunity. I probably would have looked in a different direction for the next step, but because uh, of, you know, who she was and what she was bringing to the table, that was, you know, what worked for us. And although we, we called her CFO and sure she helped with a lot of financial matters, it was really more of the process and scaling the company overall, bringing us together and saying, okay, let's break it down into its simplest form. Every aspect of what we do, we have to write a written process and we have to improve. We brought on systems. You know, it was really a, a transition. You know, she helped in, in the CEO capacity, but, uh, you know, financial was her background. That's huge. So as a contract CEO myself and having the responsibility to run 11 companies right now in what I do, it's, I know that you got to have someone who can read the label from outside the bottle. And it sounds like you found that person who had that critical thinking, was able to say, listen, let's not solve world hunger. Let's take a look at how we're making dinner. And let's look at who we want to make that dinner for. That's amazing to put that kind of person in place. So I look at some of the small businesses that are doing, like I said, say half a million to to $3 million. And one of them in particular is doing the estimating, going out to all the work sites in the construction business. He actually happens to be in the New York area. And so he's spending a lot of time running around looking at the projects. And he says, oh, I need an estimator. Oh, I need a project manager. Oh, I need an assistant. And then it's like, well, I, I don't have the capital resources right now to put that person in place. And there's some people who are even waiting to get paid. So there's this, in his mindset, it's like, I don't have the bandwidth to focus completely on business development, but I need an estimator and a project manager. It sounds like maybe you've been in that place at some point. What would what advice would you give to to that business, that contractor who's he knows his trade, but he's trying to do everything himself. He's trying he needs an estimator. What does he do? It's a double edged sword. I was definitely in that position, and on top of being in that position, I have a small control issue. So it was very hard for me to give up the reins and you know, as as uh, we started to evolve. But what I would say to somebody who's in that position, you have to make a decision what type of company you want to be. Now, there's plenty of probably more construction companies and more small businesses than are not that are in that position where an owner operator is handling all different aspects and wearing so many different hats. And that might work for some people, but you're never going to scale the company. So if you're comfortable being a a two, $3 million company, and he's probably, uh, well, you're saying that, you know, maybe there's some financial issues there, but uh, you know, so there might be other, other things going on behind the scenes. But, you know, some people are comfortable like that and they're making a living that way. If you want to scale your company and you want to go from three to 10 million, you absolutely have to have other people in place because you're working in your business and not on your business. You have to have an estimate. You have to have a project manager. You can't handle it all. You have to be out there with clients. If you're in the field and you're doing estimates at night and you're, you're handling every aspect of the business, you're lacking on your client service. You're not out there. You're not shaking hands, you're not talking to these people, you're not having the relationships that you need to be able to grow to business. That's huge advice. You know, I think focusing on what's essential. I look at the three major pieces in a business that need traction. I call this the, the place where you need your mistake laboratory. 
So I look at lead acquisition, lead conversion, and production capability. And if your ability as a business owner isn't to be aware of how your, where your leads are coming from and how you control them, which is building relationships like you talked about, and how you're converting them, which is the person who's going to do the follow-up, you know, get the estimating together, do the discovery, do the follow-up, and then production capability. When are we maxed out? And who, you know, when do I move the dot down and give someone else that responsibility? It's essential. And it's like if those three things aren't dealt with, it sounds to me like you're saying, like, make a decision. Find a partner, find the money, find the way, put the people in place. Now, when you make that leap and you make the commitment, do you feel like at that point, if the person really understands what they're doing and how to help people, that they'll find that their business will change in really good ways? It will, if you find the right people. Yeah. Right? And, and those positions that you mentioned are not easy positions to fill mm. by any means. I mean, we went years with you know, estimators. That, I mean, that's one of the hardest positions to fill is to get a good estimator, somebody who doesn't miss things and can have, you know, uh, there's so many different levels to being a good estimator. Mm. But you have to be willing to pay for it. Yeah. So don't Where do you go to find that? I mean, do you jump on Indeed and place an ad? Do you put a feature on the website, say, you know, we're always looking for great people to join our team? Like, what's the, you know, it seems like a culture. In the beginning, it was, you know, word of mouth and our network. And when we outgrew that, then obviously we were, we were placing ads. We were doing the Indeed and, you know, Craigslist and whatever else. I, I don't remember what we were doing at the time. <laughs> we're getting a lot of great candidates from that. We have used recruiters in the past, mm -hmm. um, you know, so th there's a, a lot of different ways, but mainly what, what we try to do is, is find, you know, the best candidates, you know, maybe it's people, you know, that, that we know that we're working with a different company, but for some reason or another are, are ready to move on. And, um, you know, we've been, we've been fortunate in that, you know, at this sense, we build an unbelievable team, but there was a, a, a lot of trial and error to get there. Okay. So, I mean, I think at this point now we understand that when you make that transition from a million dollar a year company, million dollars in business to getting up into the, into the multi-millions and getting, you know, to the point where you're doing over $10 million or more, there has to be a willingness to let go. There has to be a willingness to focus on getting the right people. There has to be a decision that it's not going to all be you and to put the systems in place that allow that. So I would ask you to stay on the cutting edge in your business how do you make sure that your business stays relevant, stays in the conversation and stays on the cutting edge? So you're the guy who gets the call. I'm in the community. Uh, I am as well as my business development manager. We're in the community on, on, on many different levels. You know, there's, there's different organizations to be part of. We now have ingrained ourselves into the construction community in, in general. So when projects come up, our name is in the conversation. You know, and that's not something that, that happened overnight or by accident. I mean, we worked at that, you know, over the past couple of years. So, you know, architects, engineers, business leaders, different, you know, different avenues that we're, we're just, we're forging relationships with, but we're, we're out there actively being in the community. We do a lot of give back, you know, in different organizations, but, you know, that's probably the most important factor as far as being relevant. So you're talking about making the time and making those connections. So I tell you, the, the number of small businesses that don't take that time, it's shocking. So it's like you got over that hump. It's everything. But it, listen, I'm, we're, we're really minimizing what it took to get to that point because <laughs> it wasn't easy for me, uh, yeah. I'm telling you, to give up that control. And if it wasn't for our, our CFO coming on at that time and really pushing me 
and bringing to my attention how much I was holding on and not allowing and trusting in the process and the people that we were putting in place. You know, listen, you, people have to earn your trust. I'm not saying that you blindly just let go of your, your, your baby. Right? Uh-huh. I mean, this was blood, sweat, and tears that my partner put into the, and I put into this company. So that's not easy. And I'm not trying to minimize that for any owners that are out there right now and saying, yeah, just do this. It took a lot for us to get well, there. Let's expand on that. If you could expand on that a little bit, what I'd love to do, if you could bring the listeners down to some of those really tough moments where it was like, you're going to make a decision here, like a paradigm shift moment where, where you were in the dark moment and it's like, I got to make a decision and this is not comfortable. I can't even think of just one off the top of my head right now, other than like overall stuff. I would say, you know, monetarily, let's discuss that. Okay. That was something that nobody was allowed to make a decision without me signing off on. So in the field, and we have currently 17 projects going on. That wasn't at, at the time, but let's just try to wrap our head around that a little bit. 17 projects, you got guys that need whatever, pick one, uh, nails, screws, something. At the time, nobody could purchase something without me signing off on it. Then okay. we got to the point, okay, you have to allow them $1,000 or 5000 or whatever it was, and, and it incrementally went up without me having to give my, my approval on that. So that was a progress. That was, you know, that, that was something that took us some time for me to allow that trust and for that money to go out without me saying yes prior to. When did it click for you where you're like, I'm making people give me estimates for nails before they go make a purchase. I have to sign off on everything. Like what, what can you think of one moment where you're like, this is taking up all my time. Like what, what happened where you finally let go? Cause I know, I know for me, like for me, I can think of a moment in my business where I hired a project manager and the project manager says, you're teaching your clients that the best thing you can do as the owner and founder, if you're really going to be leading the company, you're not the technician in your business. You got to look at 70% of what you're doing. This is what I teach. And you got to find a way to make sure that's not on your plate anymore. So you can do the things that allow you to lead and grow the business. And I remember at that moment, I looked at the amount of time I was actually writing creative briefs for projects that we weren't even doing in house. I'm not a marketing firm anymore. And she said, how much time did you spend on that? We started breaking it down and I tracked my entire week. And I saw that I was spending like 90% of my time on thinking through projects that these people on my team could easily have handled because of a control thing. When that freed up, I remember that, that first week, there was this big void of all this time. And all I needed to do was check red light, green light, see if it was moving along. And I was like, oh, I can go talk to people. I can grow my business. So what was that for you? I can't say that there was a specific moment. I, it was a slow process for me. It but really was. Pain, man. Like what? It, it was, it was, but it, <laughs> it was probably two years of, you know, gradually getting to that point. Okay. And even though I knew it was necessary and I, I did have trust in, in the people that we, you know, put in those positions, it was, it was just difficult for me. It was something that was, was a process. So you felt like you were a bottleneck. And I was. I mean, that's the bottom line. I, I was absolutely a bottleneck. And, you know, we started getting pushback, you know, from, from our, our people in the field. We can't operate like this. It just doesn't work. You know, and I listened, but it was hard. Yeah. That's awesome. This is, these are huge insights. The fact that you've overcome it, you're a much bigger business than you were back when you were in, in 2009 as you were partnering up with your friend. Yeah, sure. And 
It's uh, if you could share one piece of advice on something I didn't ask it that you might share with other business owners, people in home services space or business, maybe building development, construction, whatever, what would you share? Maybe something that I didn't ask that they can take away with them from now, like just do this one thing or think about this one thing. I would say the most important thing is your company culture. Okay. So we did touch on the fact that your, your people are the most important, right? You have to have a, a strong team around you. You have to have talent around you, but how you get to that, that point, because we talked about indeed or, or recruiting or, or stuff like that, but your, your culture is going to speak for itself. So we have worked very hard to develop a strong culture in the company that people want to work here and word has gotten out and King's capital has become a place that you want to be. And that's, I think the most critical thing is your company culture. And that's something that everybody should be focused on. If you want to grow, you have to have a strong team around you. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's in, in its simplest form. That's it. And you have to build a company that people want to work at because turnover is your Achilles heel. Right. I mean, first of all, the fact that how, how much it costs you uh, on many different levels, if you have constant turnover, word is going to be out about that in your company. Your clients aren't going to have as much trust in you and, and faith in you. And everything is a domino effect from there. So I would say the most important factor is building a strong company culture and the rest will fall into place. Yeah. Do it, live in what you preach. Making it attractive by living what you preach, doing what you say you're going to do, taking care of your team and the people. That's amazing. The insights that you've shared and what you've been through are incredibly inspiring. JD, I, I'm, I appreciate this is our first episode and you've shared so much. I'm thinking of all the people who are, who are listening right now who are going to be thinking of themselves. Um, I've got some homework. So what we'll do is put some key points from, from this interview into the show notes. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best place for people to be able to contact you, JD? Well, uh, they can go on our, our website, our Instagram, uh, which is Kings Capital Construction. Our website is kingscapitalgroup.com. There's contact information for us on there, and they can uh, send us an email. It, gets, it will get to me directly, and I'm happy to talk with, with people you know, and, and answer questions and whatever they need. Well, I'm inspired. I actually have some action items I'm going to take after listening to you. There's some essential things that are really key here. Uh, thanks again, JD. Again, JD Suma, the CEO of King Capital Construction, Inc. in New York, the go-to guy. Um, you've done amazing things. I'm Nate Lindquist with the Minimalist CEO Podcast. JD, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Nate. Absolutely. I look forward to being in touch again. What's that again? Good luck with the podcast. Hey, thanks very much. And uh, we'll be in touch real soon. Thanks everyone for joining. Thanks for listening. And uh, we'll be back in touch. Hope to see you on the next podcast. Look at the show notes uh, down below. If you have any other questions, reach out to us, help at the minimalistceo.com. And thanks again for being here.